Hello and welcome back to Seeker Plus, where we take deep dives on one topic. I'm your host, Julian Huguet, and the topic of this series is near and dear to my heart. We're going to talk about SSTs, supersonic transports, aka commercial jets that fly faster than the speed of sound. We're going to go into the physics of sound, how it relates to aircraft, and then we'll talk about the SSTs of the past. And lastly, we'll look to the future and examine how they could finally make a comeback. But first, I want to go back a bit. Do you remember your childhood obsession? Was it comic books, dinosaurs, space? Knowing our audience, I'd bet it was something fantastically nerdy. Well, for me, it was airplanes. I had piles of books on fighter jets, a collection of glue and fingerprint covered models. I knew I was never destined to be a fighter pilot. I was gifted with the athletic prowess of a tangled marionette and the eyesight of an old dog. But I settled for a more attainable dream instead. I wanted to fly faster than the speed of sound. Now, when I was growing up, that was actually a possibility. But today, it isn't. You know, unless I make friends with someone who has a spare F-16 and a back seat that they can loan me. Commercial airplanes now are no faster than they were in the 1960s. Why is that? I mean, surely we've made advances in engines and materials and computers. Why can't we just strap some fancy, ultra-powerful engines to a jetliner and go from New York to LA in half the time it takes now? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but pretty much all of them are rooted in the physics of sound. Now, to understand why the speed of sound is so important for aircraft, first we have to have a solid understanding of what sound is. Sound is a wave that carries energy, but when I say wave, you might picture something like ripples on a pond that move the surface up and down as they propagate outward. That's a transverse wave, and sound doesn't move that way. Sound is what's called a longitudinal wave, and it oscillates in the same direction it propagates. Sounds fancy, but try and break it down with an example. Picture a stretched out slinky. Now, if you were to take one end and give it a quick push, you would see the coils of the slinky come together in an area of compression. Now, that bunched up section of slinky travels down the coils, carrying the energy from that initial push along to the other end. The coils themselves, they don't move very much. They just bunch up when the wave comes along and stretch out after what's known as rarefaction. And then they pretty much return to where they started. Sound works in a similar way. When something makes a sound, it does so by pushing on the air molecules, which bump into their neighbors and create an area where the air is at a higher pressure than the air next to it. The air molecules pass the energy along, bumping into their neighbors like a clumsy conga line until the wave reaches your ears and your brain interprets the pressure changes. Also, I could play with this thing all day. Somebody take it away from me. Okay. Sound is also a mechanical wave, meaning it needs a medium to travel through. That can be a liquid or solid or a gas like air. Unlike light, it can't travel through a vacuum. That's why they say in space, no one can hear you scream. Ah! It's also why sci-fi movies that have explosions in space drive me up the wall. But I do guess it would be anticlimactic if the rebels blew up the Death Star and all the theater heard was... Anyway, sound travels at different speeds depending on the medium, moving the slowest through gas and the fastest through a solid. 
Its speed also changes depending on the temperature of the medium. Temperature is, after all, how fast molecules are vibrating. So at higher temperatures, they'll bounce off each other more quickly, and sound will travel faster. What this means is down at sea level, where air is warmer, the speed of sound is about 340 meters per second, or 760 miles per hour, if you can only think in freedom units like me. At the altitudes airliners typically fly, the air is much colder, around negative 56 degrees Celsius, and the speed of sound up there is much slower as a result. It moves at about 295 meters per second, or 660 miles per hour. That's almost 50 meters per second slower than down here by the nice warm ground. So next time someone's trying to get your attention and you want to ignore them, maybe just say it was too cold, the sound took too long to reach you, and then when they give you a bewildered stare, you can refer them to this show and we'll grow our audience, you'll stay introverted, everybody wins. Okay, back to the speed of sound. Because it's different at different altitudes, it's easier to think of it using Mach numbers. Not Mach numbers like, ah ha ha, pie, you're so irrational or whatever. No, no matter the air temperature, the speed of sound can simply be referred to as Mach 1, M-A-C-H. It's named after Ernst Mach, an Austrian physicist who, among his many, many contributions to science and philosophy, did pioneering work in the late 1800s investigating how supersonic projectiles affect the air they move through. He did this by taking pictures of bullets in flight and even borrowed a cannon from the Austrian Navy for his work, which sounds like a sweet perk of the job. So let's come back to the key question, which is, why does all of this matter for airplanes? Well, sound, as we established, travels as air molecules bump into each other and it moves at a finite speed. Airplanes travel, wait for it, through the air. So if an airplane is flying well below the speed of sound, the air ahead of it can move out of the way and everything goes smoothly. But as its speed approaches Mach 1, things start to act very differently. Even though the airplane itself may not be going the speed of sound, some air passing over some parts of it, like the top of the wing, can go supersonic. And when that happens, the air molecules get squeezed together faster than they can get out of the way, and they create a shock wave. These shock waves move back as the plane speeds up, and they can cause the nose of the airplane to pitch downward and make controls unresponsive, sending an airplane into a dive from which there is no escape. Many brave test pilots died pushing their planes past the limit. It was such a massive challenge, it was dubbed the sound barrier. The worst instability comes when an airplane is in what's known as the transonic range, which is from about Mach 0.8 to Mach 1.2. Past that, and the air moving over the wings is all supersonic, making it smooth and stable again. But for a commercial airplane, another problem arises above Mach 1. The sonic boom. An airplane traveling faster than the speed of sound literally outruns the sound it makes. It'll pass by you before you even hear it. For the poor air molecules in its path, this means they get no warning that a plane is coming and they get absolutely blindsided. They're plowed into a cone-shaped shockwave just ahead of the plane's nose where air pressure instantly spikes. Couple this with the shockwave that started on the wing and has since moved back to the plane's trailing edge, and the result is a loud double boom that can break glass. And contrary to popular belief, a sonic boom doesn't just happen at the moment a plane breaks the sound barrier, it's generated continuously. 
heavier planes tend to make bigger booms. So to anyone below the flight path of a supersonic passenger jet, they could be a nuisance at best and possibly dangerous at worst. In fact, public outrage over sonic booms is a big part of what nearly doomed SSTs before they even got off the ground the first time around. The first sonic boom from an aircraft rang out over the Mojave Desert in Southern California in October of 1947. Piloting the rocket-powered Bell XS-1, Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier and joined an exclusive club, of which he was the first member. Better known by its later designation of X-1, the XS-1 was built for speed. Maybe that's why it was XS. It had a body shaped like a 50 caliber bullet, wings that were thin but very strong, and control surfaces at the tail that could move as one big unit so they'd work despite shockwaves. That last innovation was a major breakthrough for high-speed flight, and it was kept top secret. It would give early American fighter jets an edge over their Soviet-made opponents in the Korean War. Less high-tech was the broom handle Jaeger needed to close the cockpit door. You see, the night before his history-making flight, Jaeger was in a horseback riding accident and broke two of his ribs. He kept his injury a secret from his superiors so he wouldn't be replaced, but when he realized he couldn't shut the door inside the cramped cockpit, he came up with this crude solution. And I hope at some point someone called it a sonic broom. Crazy as that is, it's not the only story I have for you about a pilot hiding broken bones so he could fly a dangerous supersonic aircraft. We'll get to the other one later. With Jaeger's flight, the sound barrier was officially shattered, and by the 1950s, military jets were routinely breaking it. Not just smaller fighters, by the way, but big, heavy bombers, too. So, the next logical question was, when would the public go supersonic? When could anyone be like Chuck Yeager? Racing to establish themselves at the forefront of what was thought to be the future of air travel, three big players emerged. The United States, the Soviets, and a cooperative effort between the French and the British. And yes, I listed those in order of least successful to most successful. So, let's start with the Americans. Being the first to break the sound barrier, you'd think they'd had a head start, but they were caught flat-footed in 1963 when the airline Pan American ordered six SSTs from the French and British. As a matter of national pride, the U.S. launched its own government-funded program and ultimately selected a design by Seattle-based Boeing in 1966. Fun side note. The next year, Seattle got an NBA franchise, and the fans voted to name the new team the Supersonics after Boeing's flagship project. The basketball team would fare better than the plane. A major part of Boeing's design was a variable geometry wing, otherwise known as a swing wing. At low speeds, the wing pivots forward, providing better stability and slower takeoff and landing speeds. At high speeds, the wing pivots back, and the high sweep angle lowers drag for more efficient supersonic flight. Plenty of smaller fighter jets and even some larger bombers have had swing wings, but Boeing's design called for an enormous wing, which in turn needed a complicated, heavy, and expensive swing mechanism to match. Before long, the project was over budget and behind schedule, and Boeing ended up redesigning the plane from scratch. In 1971, the project was canceled, and the American SST was dead. Congress pulled the plug partly for cost reasons, but also 
largely because of growing public outrage over sonic booms. Shortly after entering the SST race, the US government tested the effects of sonic booms on residents of a few American cities, and the place that had it the worst was Oklahoma City. For six months in 1964, the US Air Force pummeled the city's residents with eight sonic booms every day the weather was nice enough to fly. The people of OKC were not amused. The FAA received as many as 500 daily complaints and a quarter of residents said they could not live with regular sonic booms. In a strange twist of what I can only describe as cosmic sports justice, in 2008, the Seattle Supersonics, the NBA team named for a project that necessitated the sonic boom tests, relocated to Oklahoma City of all places and was renamed the Thunder, which is a sonic boom that's just made by lightning. Can't make this stuff up. Anyway, the tests showed that people just wouldn't tolerate regular sonic booms. So in 1973, the FAA banned supersonic flights over land. Backlash to sonic booms was growing overseas too, which was fine by Boeing. The company had moved their focus to a project they previously thought SSTs would make obsolete, a little plane called the 747. So not a little plane, a jumbo jet actually. But the ban was terrible news for the leading supersonic transport of the time, the French and British made Concorde. If nothing else, Concorde may be the single most beautiful airliner ever made. It was shaped like a dart with a long, slender body and a sharp nose and tail. At speed, the heat from friction with the air actually made it even longer. It stretched up to 25 centimeters. Its large, specially shaped triangular wing, known as an Augevald Delta, gracefully curved out like a billowing cape or a gown. To slow down enough for landing, it had to approach pointed up at a fairly steep angle, so to see the runway, the plane's entire nose would droop, giving it the appearance of a graceful swan. Still, it came in so fast it needed advanced carbon brakes to slow it down and special fans to cool the brakes. Because of that wing, it also needed to get moving very fast to get off the ground, so its engine had a feature otherwise only found on military jets, afterburners. An afterburner essentially dumps jet fuel right into the exhaust. It provides a huge boost in power, but isn't fuel efficient at all. When Concorde was in development, jet fuel was cheap, and that wasn't a concern. But by the time it was ready for service in the mid-70s, fuel prices shot up and made the plane much costlier to run. The stress of high-speed flight also made Concorde expensive to maintain. And because overland supersonic flights were banned, there were only a handful of transoceanic routes left available to it. Every airline that initially showed interest in the Concorde canceled their orders, except for two, British Airways and Air France. And only then they took the jet because they were forced to by their governments that had sunk so much money into the project. While over 200 were planned, just 14 Concords were delivered into service. Still, what seemed like an embarrassment eventually became a source of national pride. The two airlines realized that they could charge thousands of dollars per ticket and actually run it profitably. And the jet became a favorite of the rich and famous who would zip between New York and London or Paris in under three hours. But the good times wouldn't last. Fuel was getting more expensive and maintenance costs of the aging airframes were on the rise. The beginning of the end came in 2000 when an Air France Concorde struck a piece of debris on takeoff and crashed, tragically killing 113 people. Concorde flights were paused and safety issues were addressed. 
Concorde was scheduled to return to service in late 2001 and did so just months after the 9-11 attacks. With the airline industry in a slump and its reputation damaged, both Air France and British Airways retired the Concorde in 2003. And with it, the era of SSTs came to a close. Concorde was the most successful SST, but it wasn't the only one, and technically, it wasn't the first. The Soviet Union also decided that it was a matter of national pride they too created an SST. Their plane, the Tupolev Tu-144, was bigger and more powerful than Concorde, but there was no denying it bore a strong resemblance to its western rival, so much so that some dubbed it Konkordsky. And while the Soviets did come up with plenty of their own engineering solutions, they weren't opposed to, shall we say, borrowing some from the French and British. In fact, French intelligence arrested multiple Soviet operatives. One was caught red-handed with documents about Concorde's advanced breaks in his briefcase. His name was Sergei Pavlov, which may ring a bell, but it's not who you're thinking of. I don't think his arrest set the Russians back very much, though, because another spy, Sergei Fabiev, ran a ring of operatives that went undetected for 15 years before being charged with stealing NATO secrets. When he was caught, the French decrypted messages from Moscow congratulating him for stealing the entire set of blueprints for the Concorde prototype. By hook or by crook, the 2144 beat the Concorde into the air by a few months, and again just beat the Concorde to its first supersonic flight. But the aura of Soviet technological supremacy was shattered when a 2144 broke apart and crashed at the 1973 Paris Air Show. After years of delays, the 2144 was placed into service in 1977, but only flew 55 flights with passengers before another fatal crash in 78 grounded it for good. Or so it seemed. In the 90s, NASA was interested in bringing back SSTs and wanted to run some tests, but there were no Concords available. They were all in use. So NASA brokered a deal with a cash-strapped Tupolev to lease a mothballed 2144. NASA decided to send their own pilot, Rob Rivers, who also had experience flying Concorde. He was set to be the only person ever to fly both, but a few weeks before his trip to Russia, Rivers was hiking in Wyoming, and he fell and broke his leg and ankle. It was too late to send someone else, but it would be an embarrassment for NASA and the Russians if the press saw a pilot from the West limping aboard the iconic plane in a cast or on crutches. So, Rivers hid his injury and walked on his broken leg and ankle in front of the cameras, causing him excruciating pain. Also, he'd be allowed to fly a 70s-era super-fast jet that had a history of breaking and killing multiple people. Test pilots are a different breed, I tell ya. That NASA study into SSTs ended in 1999, but in the last few years, the agency and a few private startups have decided to take another look at bringing them back. One company, Spike Aerospace, is developing a jet that the vast majority of us will still never get to buckle into. They're focused on making small private planes aimed at wealthy business executives. Another startup called Boom has a very different strategy. They're developing a jet called the Overture that's eerily reminiscent of the only commercially successful SST to date, the Concorde. Boom's stated goal is to eventually offer flights anywhere in the world in under four hours for as little as $100 a ticket. That is a really bold statement, especially considering that the company's test jet has yet to fly. 
And they're working with the same company that made Concorde's engines, Rolls-Royce, but they still don't have an engine yet. Some big airlines have shown interest. United ordered 15 overtures. But as the makers of Concorde will tell you, just because an airline has placed an order doesn't mean they won't change their mind and cancel later. Private companies like Spike and Boom believe they'll succeed where others failed because of advances in computer-aided design and new materials that didn't exist 60 years ago. But it's not easy. One other major leader, Arion, abruptly closed up shop in 2021, despite having $11 billion worth of orders lined up. Even if these designs can get off the ground, there's still another problem they'll have to overcome. Civil supersonic flights over the U.S. are still banned because of that inescapable consequence of the physics of sound, the sonic boom. In the last few years, though, engineers have been searching for a way to turn down the boom's volume. Maybe, if it's quiet enough, people on the ground won't mind it or even notice it, and the FAA might lift its ban. That would open up transcontinental or long-haul routes for SSTs, making them viable to buy and operate in bigger numbers and drive down overall costs. One of the most promising hopes for quieter, faster-than-sound travel is being developed by NASA in collaboration with Lockheed Martin. The two entities have been hard at work on an airplane known as the X-59 Quest, or Quiet Supersonic Technology. It's finally taking shape, and what a totally bizarre shape it is. It's nearly 30 meters long, but much of its size comes from its enormous nose. Not unlike myself. Seriously, though, this thing is long. Proboscis is really more of a fitting term. Once you get over the nose, and it'll take a while, you'll notice the X-59 doesn't have a windscreen. There's no front window for the pilot to see out of. Don't worry, though, they're not going to fly with their head out the window like Ace Ventura. Instead, the pilot has a computer monitor in front of them, which will be fed live images from external cameras. The wings are also oddly curved, like a gull's wings, and the engine piggybacks on the fuselage with the intake behind the cockpit. All of these design choices were made with the help of advanced computer simulations in order to shape the shockwaves. Typical supersonic jets have features like prominent bubble-shaped glass canopies, which are great for visibility that a pilot might need in an intense dogfight. But they also create shockwaves that coalesce and make a sonic boom louder. The long nose and gentle curves of the X-59 were designed to keep those shockwaves to a minimum. So the sonic boom sounds more like a thump. It's also optimized to fly much higher than today's commercial jets, so the energy from the shockwaves can dissipate more by the time it reaches the ground. While Concorde's boom had a perceived decibel level of 105, the X-59 is aiming for just 75. That's about one-eighth the noise, or as NASA says, about as loud as a car door closing. The X-59 is still in its final stages of assembly and should be ready to take flight in 2022. Once Lockheed Martin confirms that the airplane actually, you know, flies, NASA will begin acoustic testing. Another supersonic jet will fly around the X-59 to measure the shockwaves it produces. NASA will also take pictures of the shockwaves, what's known as Schlieren photography. To do this, the X-59 will have to fly perfectly between a camera and the sun. Now, it's not easy, but they have done it in the past with older jets and come up with some really breathtaking images. It's also kind of funny to think that more than a century after Ernst Mach made breakthroughs in the physics of shockwaves with photos of speeding bullets, 
we're still doing something that's not that different in principle. At the ground level, NASA will also gather data from microphones to empirically measure just how quiet their quiet SST really is. Even if it reaches NASA's loudness goal, they'll still have to hear from the public. The final phase of testing will involve flying over big cities and rural areas to gauge people's reaction, and I can just hear the people of Oklahoma City now saying, NOT AGAIN! Once they've collected all this data, NASA will present their findings to regulators and then... Who knows what could happen? The ban on supersonic commercial flights could get lifted, and SSTs might make a triumphant return for good. The director of Lockheed's X-59 project thinks that that could happen as soon as 2035 if all goes well. Maybe then I'll finally live out my childhood dream of traveling faster than sound. Or maybe the ban will stay in place. Or maybe the FAA will allow it, but environmental agencies like the EPA will deem that emissions from supersonic flights aren't acceptable. Or maybe we'll develop carbon-neutral jet fuel that's cheap enough to make thirsty SSTs economically viable. Or maybe in an era of high-speed internet, there won't be a high demand for speedy international flights because fancy business execs will opt for video conferencing instead. Maybe they'd rather just meet up in the metaverse if that actually happens. I, I don't know. The future of supersonic commercial flight is up in the air. We may once again leap ahead in speed, or the Age of Concord might be a three-decade boom time that we've left behind for good. It could all depend on the X-59 quest, and if people across America are bothered by a mysterious double thump in the near future, or if they even notice it at all. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of Seeker Plus. If you liked it or if you have ideas for future shows, be sure to drop us a line. You can reach out to us in the comments or on Twitter at Seeker. And if you happen to have an F-16 with an open back seat and want to make the dreams of my bucktooth inner child come true, you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at Hug It Out. That's all for now. Thanks for watching. I'll see you on the next Seeker Plus.